this last coffee house, we actually hit 200 without me realizing it because I'd miscounted. <laughs> I, had, I had two like 161s and so then I went back and recounted and realized I'd already hit 200. I was going to do something super special, but now um, no cake, no prizes, no nothing like that. We're just moving on to 201. But this one is special because we've got a new book from Ben Shapiro. He came out with a book on July 21st, I believe. How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. He's given us a manual. So there are, in this election year, competing stories of America. Ben Shapiro, the prolific conservative commentator and author, offers his story of America and warns of the current trend that is eroding our shared sense of country. So what's the content of this book? So like I said, rival stories. The disintegrationist view, which is what he labels the other side, is that some of the things that they adhere to is that human nature is infinitely malleable, that equality before the law is just something to maintain power and benefits the few, that freedom of contract is a problem, and that exploitation is a feature of the system, as opposed to a bug that needs to be stamped out. Some of the benefits of our terrible capitalist system. For decades, we had some growth, you know, a little bit of growth here and there. But the capitalist century, <laughs> once capitalism was really put into place and to great effect, we had a 15,000% increase in GDP. 15,000%. Deaths by war down. Obviously, we have the, the many benefits technologically they, that we wouldn't otherwise have. And many other things. So the premises, what are the premises that are adhered to by the disintegrationist view? There are things like intersectionality. So there's this victimology and intersections of the different victim groups, which necessarily creates a hierarchy of victimhood. There's disparity as discrimination. So any disparity in any walk of life is considered discriminatory if there's a disparity. That you must criticize the system, that race should be more involved, not less involved, but more involved in the things that we talk about and assessing the validity of institutions and how things are working. It's the same as the alt-right, that you want race to be more involved in how we think and what we think and how we make determinations. So then Shapiro goes on this uh, kind of dyad approach where he has a chapter that talks about the American perspective and a chapter that talks about the disintegrationist perspective. So we've got the American philosophy now. So historically, the idea was that kings granted rights. Kings gave you rights, and on their whim, they could take them away. And the different idea was that there were these things called natural rights. Now, Shapiro offers... And all through this, keep in mind, this is about culture and philosophy, this whole, whole book, as opposed to an empirical, rigorous empirical analysis of where we are and where we need to go, etc. This is more about culture and kind of a spiritual direction for the American experiment. But in that vein, he offers Jerusalem and Athens. So Jerusalem, the big idea that came out of that, that was a precursor to what we did in America, was individualism. So every individual is made in the image of God. And so therefore, you have the seeding of the idea of individuals as being a unit as opposed to just treating them as groups or they're just the constituency that kings use however they're going to use. And then Athens provided the idea of reason, so not government by passions or powerful people. You have to use reason to determine what's true and what's not. And then you have the founders of America developing these ideas into a system of government. And they tried to create rights from the broadest possible position, so natural rights. They're from the grounds of nature. Whatever you believe is the thing that created you, 
that's what they come from, just the, the mere fact of having been created. And the government is a protector of those rights, not a source of them, which is a very important distinction. The government doesn't get to take away those rights any more than something completely unnatural that's against the law of physics can happen. The Magna Carta, of course, the idea of due process was an important idea that came from the Magna Carta. The Virginia Declaration of Rights is the precursor for the Bill of Rights, our Bill of Rights. One important point here is that if slavery was a dispositive issue for America, then we wouldn't have the Union. We wouldn't have North and South creating a Union into the entire country of the United States of America. But slavery wasn't dispositive. You know, we fought a war over it, <laughs> but we have a union now that specifically rejected slavery. And probably the most important cultural idea that comes out of this book is the idea of that the founders expected their progeny to carry on the fulfillment of the promises made by the De Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So even though when it was created, it was not perfect, it wasn't respecting the rights of people who deserve to have their rights respected, the point was they expected that their progeny, that their sons and daughters would go on to ensure that those rights were effectuated over time. It was a promise made and eventually kept. We have the pillars of our system, the important ideas, the enumerated powers, the checks and balances, and federalism, that powers are few and defined, and that local governments govern best. Local governments have a better idea of the issues that are going on in their local space, so they're going to govern best and figure, be able to figure out best what to do about those issues. Then we switch to disintegrating American philosophy. So the previous idea was that human equality was not in attributes, but in the law. But disintegrationists posit that humans are infinitely malleable. So when there's inequality, then it was because the government didn't shape people to the proper degree to make them equal. The government is the one who supplies rights. They're not natural rights. The government supplies them and can take them away as necessary to create a more equal system. There's equality of outcome as opposed to just equality of opportunity. So if the end result of the system is that people are unequal, then that's an injustice. That's a problem. You need more government power to be able to fix that. And this idea of government of elites who are providing for the masses. They're the ones disseminating. The government is the one disseminating the rights and what you need to do or not do. And all the things that you may need or not need, the government is providing those things. And then there's this idea of positive rights, which is if you put about 30 seconds into thinking about this, then you realize that positive rights are absolutely ridiculous. But this is a major platform of what disintegrationists want to do nowadays, is that they want to create a positive right to things like housing, things like healthcare. The problem is that that specifically must infringe upon somebody else's, because if you have a right to housing, you have to have somebody who's going to build that house. If you have a right to healthcare, you have to have somebody who's going to provide that healthcare. It's not like negative rights where if you have a right to free speech, it's just the government saying, I'm not going to do anything to infringe that right. If you have a right to bear arms, the government doesn't say, okay, I'm going to buy you a gun, <laughs> they say that you have a right to acquire one if you want one. A positive right says that they are going to do something, they're going to get somebody else to do something for you. If you have a positive right to food or housing or healthcare, then somebody else has to provide that. Disintegrationists have this idea where disparities automatically equal discrimination. So if there's a disparity, it must be injustice, it must, must be discrimination. And then you need discrimination to create equality thereafter. So if you have disparities, then you have to discriminate against the people who are ahead to make sure that things equal out. 
And disintegrationists want a government of morals instead of laws. It's not just the government dispassionately and objectively applies laws. It's just that the government tries to manufacture a moral people and decide what morals are and force people to be those morals. Then we shift to culture, the American culture. The role of government is not to enforce virtue, it's to protect rights. The smallest minority of all is the individual. So it's really important to make sure that the mob cannot infringe on the rights of the individual. Another important idea, the Constitution is made for a moral and religious people. And if we don't have a moral and religious people, then we could have some serious problems going forward. It seems to be the case. And if anybody who's listened to the show before, obviously they know that I'm not a big fan of religion just in general. And I will, via argument, beat it into the ground whenever I come into it. But this is one of those things that I think it's very, very right to say that the Constitution is made for moral and religious people, that we generally have to have a religious people to be able to uphold the rights, to have the integrity to uphold the rights when it comes to the Constitution and the American experiment. You have to have a culture of duty to support a culture of rights. You have to have both of those things. If you don't have the duty, it's not going to support the rights, and those things are going to fall by the wayside. And that's, I think, what we're seeing nowadays. Private ownership, very important. The idea that if you put your hands into the ground and create something out of it, that you own that thing. If you build a house, then you own that thing. It's just an extension of the idea of you owning your own labor. And you can see a differential when it comes to North versus South Korea. You know, very similar in virtually every respect. But North Korea went to central planning and South Korea went to free market. And South Korea is one of the most prosperous nations on the planet. North Korea is a horrible dystopia where people starve. So you can see how those things function in different areas and one of the things to keep in mind so the nordic countries people bring those up the nordic countries are not the answer when it comes to socialism nordic countries are free market economies denmark is a market economy it actually ranks higher than the united states on the index of economic freedom the thing you have in the nordic countries and the other ones like sweden and uh, the netherlands and those are right around the same area when it comes to the rankings of economic freedom you just have market economies that are very generous socially. Uh, you don't have socialist economies. The reason they can be more generous is because they have defense, external defense. They don't have to worry so much when it comes to wars. They have a population that's the size of a major American city. They have homogeneity, so they have way less crime. There are numerous reasons why they are able to provide a broader social safety net. But they're still market economies, and they're still relying on market economy to function. So then we switch to the disintegrationist view of culture, and the burden of proof shifted from the government having to prove that it has a right to infringe upon a right to the individual to prove that they have that right, you know? And that's scary. That's something that should not be the case. Again, the idea of natural rights is eroding. The individual has natural rights. They're unquestioned. They're established. The discussion is over when it comes to natural rights. And the government, and now the shift is saying that the government gets to ask you, okay, why do you get this right? And decide that you don't get it anymore if it, for whatever reason the government wants to. Things like the ACLU have just given up on free speech. It used to be the case that the ACLU would go to legal bat for the KKK to make sure the KKK is able to be able to give their speeches and have their parades and all that sort of thing. And now the ACLU is just giving up on that idea of free speech and switching to this kind of social justice method of uh, we have to show that we are virtuous, so we're not going to protect that kind of speech anymore. That's exactly the problem. It should not have any bearing. It should not have any bearing when it comes to the right and enforcing the right, what the person is saying. It shouldn't matter. What's on offer right now is eternal adolescence. 
it seems. That's what's being kind of disseminated throughout the the American crowd, is that you get to be an eternal adolescent. <laughs> you never have to grow up. You never have to, have to be an adult and deal with things that make you sad or anything like that. Marx called for the abolition of the family. Of course, that is echoed in the BLM charter that says that we want to get rid of the nuclear family. That's echoed again by a government website for the National Museum of African American History, where they had this weird chart that talked about how all these things were whiteness. And it had things on there like hard work, punctuality, and the nuclear family. All those things were on this chart that said these are whiteness. Then we switch to history. Okay, American history, what is that? Importantly, so Jane Hamilton called out slavery. Jefferson called it a moral blot on the country. Madison was against slavery. The problem was you had the development of the cotton gin, which exploded the demand for slavery. So you have a lot of the early founders expressing that they have a problem with this institution and expecting that the people that come after them, their sons and daughters, were going to go on to effectuate the promise that had been made. The idea of the adventurous American spirit, that's something that's just gone nowadays. I mean, the only one who seems to be espousing it anymore is Elon Musk. He's the only one who seems to have that sense of adventure and searching out the stars, that sort of a thing. We don't have a West Coast to go to anymore. And, but that American adventurous spirit is something that's been lost. Then there's uh, some discussion about the history, you know, when it comes to the Monroe Doctrine and keeping Europeans out and proxy wars and all that sort of thing. And then civil war as a fulfillment of the original promise. And this is one of the steps in the fulfillment of the promise of the Declaration of Independence. Then you've got race riots and anti-war protests and crime rates skyrocketing and decline of the family and the Soviet relations and all that sort of thing. And then you have the Reagan revolution where Reagan says government is not the solution, government is the problem. If no one among us can govern ourselves, how are we able to govern someone else? And then there's a crisis of identity after the Soviet Union fell because you didn't have anything galvanizing the American people. And then you have, when we run into Obama, suddenly he's talking about how we need much more federal power to do all these things. And then disintegrationist American history opens, this chapter opens with Jefferson Davis and how Jefferson Davis rejected the promises in the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson Davis, of course, being the leader of the Confederacy. And people today have the same position. They reject the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> Everybody's just created equal under the law. That equally applicable rights are not the thing that we need. They want to dissolve the country. History is no longer something that we use to establish our shared perspective and our shared understanding of the country. It's now used as a weapon. You have historical revisionism like a people's history of the United States and the 1619 Project, which try to use history politically. And I just saw on Twitter, the progenitor of the 1619 Project specifically saying, no, it's not history, and no, it's not real journalism, it's just uh, me trying to establish a narrative. Like, that's not how journalism or history are supposed to work. Then you've got things like critical race theory, which tries to posit that everything is based on race, despite the fact that when you control for family and uh, the way that the family is composed, then black women earn more than white women. And single parenthood rates, when you control for that, then it makes a lot of sense of where groups are today. You have black immigrants outperforming native black Americans. You have Asians outperforming white people. And then you realize that it's not just a matter of disparity equals discrimination. Conclusion, we need shared history, we need shared philosophy, and we need shared culture for this experiment to keep working. 
Okay, what's my analysis of this book? So it's primarily a philosophical argument. Now, Ben Shapiro, just in general, he races through so many topics at such a high speed that you don't get much depth on any of these topics. But I think he's mostly right in the way that he frames the way we should talk about this subject and what is necessary for going forward. These are very important concepts. So for Shapiro, he adheres to this idea that was adhered to by Frederick Douglass and the founders. I think this is a more historically accurate idea of what America was at that time and what it has been and what it is now. Frederick Douglass specifically was talking about how we had a promise. You were given, we were given a promise, everybody in this country, at the Declaration of Independence, and that's something that hasn't been completely fulfilled at this point. So that's what we need to do, is make sure that promise is fulfilled. So that's what Frederick Douglass said, that's what the founders were talking about, how there is a moral blot on our system, how there are these injustices that are ongoing that we need to correct, because we promised that we would. And these promises were fulfilled through the Civil War and through the Civil Rights Movement. Once we got women's suffrage, all those things put together, we're fulfilling those promises. And as of 2020 in America, those promises have been substantially fulfilled. So what's the big picture? We have America in a state of artificial upheaval. It's not Vietnam. It's not women's suffrage. It's not civil rights. It's a bunch of pathetic kids with an identity crisis and a manipulative political party who's using that. We're the worst we've ever been because so many institutions are failing and betraying their most fundamental charge. Institutions like the education system, where it no longer encourages that adventurous spirit, that adventurous American spirit, and tells kids that you need to be your best work to be your best. That's what's important. That's what's moral, is to try to be your best. Instead, it's assuring them that they're already great and don't need to work for anything. <laughs> or journalists becoming agitators and activists and allying with political elite instead of allying with the people, which is what they're supposed to do. That's what their entire profession is supposed to be about, is figuring out what's true so they can get that information to the people so the people can be aware of what's going on with their government. We need a fundamental shared commitment to cultural ideas like natural rights, government as protector of rights, affection for things like the American dream, and the reinvigoration of that frontier, adventurous American archetype that we've lost. I mean, we likely have the most intellectually and emotionally frail generation in American history coming up behind us right now. And they're going to have to go up against the Russians and the Chinese. We need a strong bulwark that is completely committed to American freedom and isn't going to counterattack a Russian or Chinese efforts to bring the country down by saying, you're hurting my feelings. So, I don't know. I don't know how rosy our future looks. But anyway, so that was the book. That was Ben Shapiro Reading List, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. And this was The Last Coffee House. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you on the next one. Okay, bye.